If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, and I hope you do, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there provided for you in the pew. I would encourage you to grab that, and let's turn together as we look at the Scripture this morning, Philippians chapter 2. And if you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 17 through 30. So that's through the end of the chapter this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 30. Again, the Apostle Paul writing while imprisoned in Rome, he writes and says these words, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow." Therefore, I am sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. You can be seated. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at this chapter, and Paul has painted this beautiful picture of the process of sanctification in the life of the believer, how we are to grow in our walk with Christ once we have been justified in Him. That process of salvation really being worked out throughout the entirety of our life as we're conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And Paul has been encouraging the church and encouraging us as well some 2,000 years later to continue in that fight to continue in that battle, and he helps us to understand how sometimes difficult the work in and how much effort we must put in to fight against the evils that would persuade us or to call us or to tempt us to turn away. And Paul's heart here is really poured out in these last parts of chapter 2, because as we've shared over and over again, both in this study and in our other places where we've looked at the Apostle Paul, we see his genuine care and concern for the church. Paul loved the church of Jesus Christ. He didn't love it just because they supported him. He didn't love it just because he was trying to build a following for himself or because it made him famous. Paul loved the church because it was the body of Christ. Paul understood his role as an under-shepherd of Christ Jesus. He understood the responsibility that he had to care for, not just to plant a church and leave, but to continually be concerned about the discipleship and the growth of the people who were there. And so as Paul sat in prison, it would have been very easy for the Apostle Paul to not really be concerned about anybody else, but just concerned for his own welfare. He sat there in prison, unsure of what was going to happen, unsure whether he would live or die. By this point in Paul's letter, it seems that he's gotten maybe perhaps some more positive insight that he would be genuinely be released and not put to death, but still the timing of that is uncertain. But Paul could have just sat down and had a pity party for himself. But instead, his heart is continually about his brothers and sisters in Christ and his desire that they would continue to grow in Christ. So he takes some time to share from his own heart, to share from his own perspective about what's going on in his life. He knows as he sends this letter back to the church, they're going to be continually be worried about him because he is in prison, continually worried about him because they're not certain of the outcome, continually worried about him because he has suffered so much for the cause of the gospel. How is Paul feeling in these moments? Because if we're honest in our own fleshly situation, if, if we were in Paul's case, we would just be moaning and complaining most of the time. Oh, woe is me. And you say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Is it because 
None of us are in prison right now for the cause of Christ, and we have the tendency to moan and complain about even tiny little things, right? The line was too long at the grocery store. You know, we, we got a little bit frustrated when things didn't happen the way that we thought that they would. But I love the Apostle Paul's heart here, because what he shows us in the latter part of this passage is really three examples that we should follow. And I don't think that Paul meant to include himself in this list, but, but he does so in such a way that we cannot help but see it. He, he's going to give us the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and they're really examples that you should follow. But he, he, first, before he shares with those two men, he just talks about himself. And in doing so, he gives us a third example to follow. And the Christian life is all about examples. We look through the scriptures and we see the lives of men and women who have lived out their faith in such a bold and passionate way. And remember, we are called, Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. The Christian life is one of of emulation. We look at people and we respect those people and we follow after them. We follow their example, not to be like them or to be them, but we follow their example of obedience in Christ in order that we too may be obedient to Christ. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is Paul's example, and Paul's example was one, number one, of a life of sacrifice, a life of sacrifice, and that's in verses 17 and 18. He says, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul says that, but even if I am being poured out. Again, Paul was uncertain of exactly what would happen to him. Anything could happen to him at this moment. His trial has has already been uh, completed. He has been found guilty, and here he awaits the sentencing. Will he live or will he die? Will he have life in prison or will he be set free? Paul's uncertain of all those things. Again, he's, he's already hoping that he'll be able to be set free, and it looks like it may be turning that way, but he doesn't know. But he says, no matter what happens to me, he says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, I rejoice. The word drink offering there, the idea of being poured out is a word that Paul would use again later on in his life. And really it's the idea of being poured out upon a sacrifice in both pagan and in Jewish history. When a sacrifice was made towards the end of the sacrifice, they would take a bottle of wine and they would pour it out around the sacrifice. And it was to symbolize the, the, the aroma of that sacrifice arising up to God or to the pagan deities, depending on which person was performing the sacrifice. But it was the completion of the sacrifice. It was the very last part. A drink offering was poured out upon the sacrifice. And so Paul is pointing to the end of his life and to the end of his journey. And he says, even if I am poured out in such a way, if the, if the end of my life has come, If the completion of my ministry on earth is done, he says, I am satisfied in Christ. I rejoice in what is going on. And again, Paul is going to end up being released. And then later on, he's going to be imprisoned again. And this time he will be imprisoned and he will face death. And he writes Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he uses this same language. And this time he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul was willing to live a life of sacrifice for God. He was willing to be poured out for him. He was willing to give up the entirety of who he was in order that God may be glorified and that the church at Philippi and the churches all over um, Asia Minor and in, in Jerusalem may continue to grow and to do what God had called them to do. Paul had already made reference to this earlier in this book. He says that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The apostle Paul was willing to live a life of sacrifice. He had given in other places in the scripture this same firm resolve, Acts chapter 21. He says, for I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, He says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, a life of sacrifice. Paul says, no matter what happens, no matter how it goes, I am complete and entrusted in Christ. But why did he do this? 
Why, why would somebody be willing to live their life in such a way as to refer to the, even to the coming to the end of their life of being poured out as a final sacrifice? Well, he tells us there in the second part of verse 17, he was willing to live this life because there was a purpose. He says, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. As Paul looked at the church of Philippi, he saw something that encouraged him. He saw that they were living out a sacrificial service in their own life. They were doing what God had called them to do. Paul would use that same word for sacrifice in in Romans chapter 12, where he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice there in that passage are those same two words. He says here, for your sacrifice and service. And there in Romans, he says, to be a holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. All that the Philippian church did, it was considered an act of worship unto God. The church had remained faithful after Paul's departure. You remember that this is one of those letters where Paul addresses a few things that were happening in the church, but nothing like he has to do when he writes to the church at Galatia or nothing like he has to do when he writes to the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi had strove to remain faithful to the gospel. They had endured persecution. They had endured trial and tribulation, and they remained faithful. And Paul says, as I look at what's going on there, he says, as I look at your service and sacrifice of your faith, he says, you are living your lives as living sacrifices. Daily activities that you are committing yourself to do in order to please God and to be obedient to Him. He says, when I see that happening, he says, it causes me to be willing to do whatever it takes in my own life. He says, I see your joy in the faith and it gives me joy in the faith. I see your willingness to endure and it gives me more willingness to endure. And even if God calls me to die, he says, I'm willing to do that because of what I see happening in the church there. It was because of their example of faithful obedience to Christ that Paul was willing to say, I'm enduring all things. I'm sitting in prison. I'm willing to do whatever God asks me to do. And it's worth it all to see what he is doing in you. And notice that Paul says that a life of sacrifice is also one that comes with really two types of joy. There's a personal joy and there's a shared joy. At the latter part of verse 17, he says, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Now, this is one of those things that's so counterintuitive to the mind, so counterintuitive to to human logic. How could a man who's sitting in prison, unsure about his final destination, how could a man like that be filled with such great joy? How could he be filled with such great joy that it's, it's overflowing in him? He says, I have so much joy that I just want to share it back with you. Because Paul's joy and happiness in life, his contentment in life was not based upon his circumstances. It was based upon who he had put his trust in. And his trust was in Christ. And brothers and sisters, when our trust is in Christ, it matters not what our circumstances are. We can have hope we can have joy in him. Because Paul says that it's worth it all. And again, uh, there's so many passages of scripture that we can refer to Paul again when he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. Remember what Paul had said earlier? He said to be persecuted or to suffer for Christ is a thing to be gloried in to rejoice in, to rejoice in the sufferings on behalf of Christ. And so Paul says, if I'm here suffering, he said, I'm going to rejoice because I'm experiencing this for the glory of God and on his behalf. Paul was filled with great joy. It's quite the contradiction to the joy-filled life that some might promote today. We hear people talking about, oh, well, you can live with great joy, but what does joy and happiness look like from a worldly standard? Well, it's if you have a lot of money, right? If you have lots of money, then you have a happy or a joy-filled life. You have lots of fame. Or maybe it's just based upon the idea of happiness, right? If you have great joy, you just are happy all the time. Now, there is a correlation between joy and happiness, but brothers and sisters, you don't have to be happy to know joy. 
There are times in our life where we are filled with sorrow and filled with hurt and filled with discouragement, but we still have the joy of the Lord in our hearts because the joy of the Lord is not something that can be taken away by our circumstances. The joy of the Lord is not something that can be taken away by our emotions. If our emotions could control our joy in Christ, we would always be discouraged. We would never have the joy that he gives to us. And so Paul says, God has given me this great joy to to trust in him and to know him. This is really, ultimately, we could stop here and preach a message on the sovereignty and the providence of God. Because Paul is ultimately saying, he says, the reason that I can have great joy is because I worship a God who is sovereign and I'm here not by accident. Wherever I am, wherever you are this morning, you are not there by accident. God has providentially guided your life until this moment. And you are here because God has guided you here. And he will give you the joy that you need despite your circumstances. But Paul says that this is a shared joy because he says in verse 18, he says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So Paul says, I'm overjoyed. I'm going to give you my joy. He says, I want you to take it. I want you to fill it up inside yourself. Rejoice with me. He says, and then you share that joy back with me. So the Christian life is one of shared joy. Remember, Paul is writing this letter back to the church at Philippi because all they have heard is Paul's in prison. Now for us at this point in this study, remember, we we know a lot more things about Paul than even the church at Philippi does because they haven't gotten this letter yet. They haven't received it. All they know is that Paul is in prison and they're worried. They're concerned. They're, They're discouraged maybe perhaps because they know that their beloved pastor is in prison and doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So they're concerned about this. And so Paul is writing this letter and he gets to this point and he says, brothers and sisters, do not be sorrowful for me. He says, I am not asking for your sorrow. I'm not asking for your pity. He says, in fact, what I'm asking for you to do is to rejoice with me. Throw a party and celebrate the fact that I'm in jail in Rome because he's already laid out the fact of the ministry that God has given him there. God has given him so many more opportunities to do the work of the gospel than Paul would have ever had had he not been in prison. And he says, rejoice with me. He said, I want to know. He said, I want to hear back from you that you understand this joy that is found in obedience to Christ and in trusting in his providence and you rejoice alongside of me. Later on in this book, he'll tell them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, remember that. Rejoice in the Lord always. It doesn't just say rejoice in the Lord when things are going well for us. Rejoice in the Lord when everything looks all right, feels all right. Rejoice in the Lord when we're happy. Rejoice in the Lord when we have enough money. Rejoice in the Lord when you have the job you want. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Do we trust the Lord? Do we trust his providence in our life? If we do, we'll be filled with this joy because we know that no matter what's going on around us, God is still in control. We can struggle sometimes. I'm I'm, I'm the first one to admit, we can struggle sometimes with anxiety and worry, but you know why we do that? It's because we're lacking in our trust in Him. We're lacking in that rejoicing aspect that God is calling us to here. James tells us, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, pastor, you don't understand my circumstance. Well, I may not, I don't know. But I know what the scripture says, to rejoice at all times, to count it joy when you encounter various trials. We are to rejoice in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. There are page after page, story after story, contained inside this book and contained inside the annals of Christian history that tell us that God cares for his people. He watches over his people and he ensures that they know his joy and his comfort. Are you willing to lay it on the line for the sake of Christ in the gospel? This is the question that we would ask ourselves. Paul here says, I'm willing to be a drink offering poured out upon the sacrifice of the church. 
He says, if it's, if it's God's will that my death would bring glory to him and would encourage the church and cause them to grow more in their faith, he says, I'm willing to do whatever God would ask me to do. Are we willing to live such a life of sacrifice? Perhaps you've never asked yourself that question. Maybe you've never even considered that, right? We live in a time where the idea of sacrifice for faith is not often considered. We have grown up, most of us in this room, in a country that was fairly tolerant tolerant of the gospel and tolerant of Christianity. But what we need to do in the time in which we live, the church must recover the idea of a life of sacrifice. We must understand that we have to be willing not to just put on the, the, the garment of Christianity, but to live out the life of Christianity to wherever God may call us to. So this is a life of sacrifice. But secondly, I want you to notice that it's a life of faithfulness. Now Paul switches from himself and he begins to talk about one who was very close to his own heart, and that is Timothy. Timothy was one who had labored alongside of Paul in so many different arenas and so many different avenues of ministry. And look there at verse 19 through 24. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly." Paul says he, he hopes in the Lord Jesus. This is really the, the culmination of all of this, right? Paul's not hoping in, in, in Rome. He's not hoping in the pity of the, of the authorities. He's trusting and hoping in Christ. He knows that everything about his life is centered in God. This is what God is going to do. This is how God is going to accomplish his purpose. He says, I trust and I hope in the Lord Jesus Paul's imprisonment had made it impossible for him to return to Philippi. He desired to go there, but instead what he decided to do was send someone who was dear to him, one who had lived out a life of faithfulness. Timothy was a faithful servant to the apostle Paul. He was there in Rome. He was not in prison, but you remember Paul's imprisonment at Rome. He was under house arrest, which allowed him the opportunity to have visitors who would come in and come out. And so Timothy was there with Paul on a daily basis, assisting him, doing the things that Paul needed for him to do that Paul couldn't do under house arrest. He was there laboring alongside, sharing the gospel. And so Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy back to you with the purpose that Timothy would go back to Philippi, hear what was going on, see what was happening to the church, and then he would bring a report back to Paul about everything that had been happening there. He would be encouraged by the arrival of his letter back to the Philippian church, and he would see what their response to that letter was and be encouraged that he would see everything that was happening, that they were continuing to grow in the faith. Paul had established this church. He had arrived there in Philippi and began to evangelize and to share the gospel. He had led them to faith planted that church, discipled them, and loved them, and his heart was such that he wanted to ensure they were continuing to grow faithfully in the gospel. And what's interesting about this passage, and again, where we can so clearly see the Apostle Paul's heart, is that Paul was willing to sacrifice his own comfort and support in order that the church at Philippi might be encouraged. Because Paul was willing to send the one who was dearest to him, He was willing to say, Timothy, I'm going to send you away to Philippi in order that the church might be encouraged. Because Paul needed Timothy. He was the one who was laboring there. He was the one who was assisting. But Paul said, I love, my love for the church is so much greater. I'm willing to sacrifice myself and my comfort in order, Timothy, that you may go to them. According to Paul, there was really nobody else like Timothy there at the present time. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit, none who would be so concerned to your own welfare. That word kindred means equal sold. 
Timothy and Paul had been connected for a long time. Timothy, as a young Christian, had met the Apostle Paul. Paul had seen something in him. He recognized the gift of God in him, and he took him along, and he mentored him. And as they've spent so much time together, Paul says, we are kindred spirits. We are equal soul. We have the same passion and the same desires, the same hopes of seeing the gospel proclaimed and people brought to faith in Christ. Really what he's doing is laying down this precedent to say, since I can't come, I'm sending you the next best thing. Since I can't come, I'm sending one who is just like me in spirit, just like me in heart, just like me with a love for Christ. But he says he's also just like me in his concern for you. The word concern that Paul uses means to have strong feeling for someone to the point of being burdened. He says, Timothy has the same genuine concern for your welfare and your well-being. Timothy was willing to go in obedience to Paul because he also loved the church at Philippi. He had been there with Paul when the church was first established. He had been there as the church started to grow. He had been there when Paul was thrown into prison there in Philippi. Timothy loved this church. He loved the people there, and he had a desire to see them grow in Christ. And so Paul says, I'm going to send to you Timothy, who is one just like me, who is genuinely concerned about you and concerned about your health and your spiritual well-being. It would have been evident to the church at Philippi of Timothy's love and faithfulness and his willing to set out on this journey to leave behind what he had established in Rome, to leave behind his friend Paul, and really to set on a trip that was no doubt difficult and dangerous. But Paul let them know that he's coming to you on my behalf because he's one who would genuinely love you and serve you just as I would if I were there. But this life of faithfulness is also proven out in, in Timothy's leadership abilities. He not only said that Timothy was a kindred spirit with concern, but really he says he's one who has one passion, and that passion is to serve Christ. Look at verse 21 and 22. He says, for they all seek after their own interest. Who are the all? Because look at verse 20. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be concerned for your welfare. Paul says, I look out upon the arena of people that I have at my disposal. He says, and there's no one else that I can send to you that has such a spirit and such a concern. He says, because they all seek after their own interest and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. Now, Paul did not mean that every other believer in Rome was not a Christian or that they were disobedient to God. Now, he's already helped us to understand that in Rome that there were some who were preaching the gospel out of envy and strife, and there were some who were preaching the gospel out of pure motives. But what Paul is saying in, in this moment is he says, as I look at everyone who's available at the moment, everyone who might be qualified for such a task, he said, there's no one else I can send to you. And we don't want to miss the harshness of this critique because Paul was clearly disappointed in what he saw because there were some there who were genuine believers in Christ who had been genuinely converted. But unfortunately, they had allowed the interests of this world to dissuade them from being obedient to Christ. They had allowed the other things that were happening in their life to say, well, Paul, you know, I would really love to go down to the church at Philippi, but I've got a big building project started next week and I've just really got to be here. You know, we're, we're having something done. We've got a big cookout planned uh, for next week. And so I really can't, I can't clear the calendar, Paul. Paul had already told us earlier in this chapter that the mark of a believer in Christ, the mark of one being sanctified, is to not merely look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Jesus told us, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke, Jesus had just told a parable was shared about as they were walking down the road, he said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
And he said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, first permit me to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We look at that and say, how harsh, Jesus, right? He won't even let the man go home and bury his father. But in context, what we understand when you read this passage is this man was not saying his father was dead. He says, my father is old and sick and and at some point he's going to die and, and I need to make sure I'm here to take care of the things for the family. So Lord, when it's convenient for me, when all those things are done, then I will follow you. And the second man, let me go say goodbye to those at home first. First, Lord, let me handle my priorities and then I'll follow you. Jesus here is not saying that we're to despise our, our loved ones, but we're to understand that as a child of God, that our priorities have changed. That he is the one to whom we are first obedient. That he is the one that we are first to prioritize the things in our life. Paul had taught others the necessity of self-denial in the Christian life. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Paul said that Timothy was a faithful leader because he was willing to put aside his own priorities, his own interests in order to be obedient to Christ. Listen to what Calvin said about this passage. He said, for you must give up your own right if you would discharge your duty. A regard to your own interest must not be put in preference to Christ's glory or even placed upon a level with it. Whithersoever Christ calls you, you must go promptly, leaving off all other things. Your calling ought to be regarded by you in such a way that you shall turn away all of your powers of perception from everything that would impede you. It might be in your power to live elsewhere in greater opulence, but God has bound you to the church, which affords you a very moderate sustenance. You might elsewhere have more honor, but God has assigned you a situation in which you live in a humble style. You might have elsewhere a more saborious sky or a more delightful region, but it's here that your station is appointed. He says, we are to give up all for Christ. We are to change our priorities and seek his own interest and not ours. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying that as Christians, we can't do things that we want to do. We can and we should do the things that we want to do as long as they are appropriate and God-honoring. But the point here is, is there are times when God calls us to His service. And then when God calls us to His service, if it conflicts with our own interest and where there are our own priorities, we have to be willing to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what you desire for me. So Timothy was one who was willing to make that sacrifice. And he says, look at um, uh, there in verse 22. He says, he has served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. Timothy's life had proven his obedience. They knew that they could trust him because they had seen him serving with Paul. That word served is used in many ways, but it's always used commonly in service to the Lord. Timothy had labored alongside of Paul. And notice he doesn't say that he has served me, but he has served with me. He's pointing to Timothy's obedience, not just as a servant of Paul, although he helped Paul. He says he is a co-laborer with me in the gospel. He is working alongside me. This again is his testimony of of his life of faithfulness, that he was willing to do whatever Paul asked him to do. He was co-laboring with him. And it's interesting how Paul points this out. He says that he has done this like a child serving his father. The relationship that the two had, Paul viewed it as a father and son. He calls Timothy this, his son in many other places in Corinthians. He says, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord? And he even writes to him in 1 Timothy and says, Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies made concerning you, that you may fight the good fight. We know that Timothy, by whom the scriptures, was raised by his mother and grandmother. 
Paul points this out in 2 Timothy when he talks about the faith that came from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And God had united these two men in such a way that provided great encouragement to both of them. Paul was able to mentor young Timothy in the faith and to raise him up. And Timothy was able to look up as Paul as a father figure in the faith, to encourage him and to challenge him to do what God had called him to do. Verse 23, he says, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. The last thing we see about Timothy's life of faithfulness was that he was available. Because he had his priorities in line, because he was willing to put God's desires above his own, when God said go through the Apostle Paul, Timothy was ready to go. He repeats his desire to send Timothy. And the timetable of the events that Paul lays out here, he says, I want to send him as soon as I can. He says, after I see how things go with me. He says, and then I trust that I myself will be coming shortly. This is how we understand that by this time in Paul's writing of his letter, that somehow he's gotten the word that perhaps he's going to be released and not be put to death. Because he speaks very positively and hopefully here that he's going to be released and be able to come to see the church at Philippi in person. He says, I'm going to wait for just a moment until I hear the furtherance of my case. And then when I know exactly what's going on, he says, then immediately after that, I'll send Timothy to you so he can bring you the good news one way or the other. Paul had hope. He trusted completely in the Lord that the Lord would obtain his release and then he would be able to come to them. Timothy lived a life of faithfulness. He lived a life of obedience to God and he lived a life of obedience to the Apostle Paul in service alongside of him. But are we called, as we are all called to live a life of faithfulness, are we willing to live our life in such obedience to him? I want you to think this morning about the priorities in your own life. I want you to think about the interests that you have. And then think about the interests that the Lord has called you to. Are you putting your own interests this morning before the interests of God? And are you willing to give those things up for the pursuit of God's plan and God's plan alone? The third thing I want you to notice here And the third example that Paul gives us is in the life of Epaphroditus and in his life is a life of risk. A life of risk. Now, a little bit about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a man who was a servant there in the church of Philippi. And the church of Philippi had sent their letter to the apostle Paul via Epaphroditus. And he had arrived there in Rome and he had brought this letter to the apostle Paul. And he would be the one who in just a few moments as Paul finishes this letter would be the one who would take that letter back to the church at Philippi. And they would read this letter and then this is how they would get the understanding of Paul's current situation, the understanding that Timothy would soon be coming after Epaphroditus. But Epaphroditus' life was one that's very interesting. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture, only here in Philippians. And his life was one that was a life of risk. Now, the church had sent him there for a couple of purposes. One was to deliver a message to the Apostle Paul, but also to deliver a financial gift to the Apostle Paul. Paul referred to this later in in chapter 4 of Philippians. He says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul was encouraged by the arrival of Epaphroditus because the church had encouraged him not just to deliver the letter and the money and return home, but for him to remain there in Rome and to serve alongside the apostle Paul. Proverbs tells us like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him for he refreshes the soul of his masters. There's something encouraging about the arrival of a message from our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's something encouraging about hearing what God is doing in the life of others. And this gift of what the apostle Paul received from the church at Philippi was so encouraging to him that he mentioned it later and he wrote to 2 Corinthians. He, he pointed out that the brethren in Macedonia, he says, they fully supplied my need. And we know from other places they did so not out of abundance, but out of lack. They gave faithfully to the apostle Paul, trusting in the Lord to provide even for their own provisions as they gave to the provisions of, the, of Paul. So the church must have really trusted and believed in Epaphroditus. 
because they sent him out on this journey. They gave him this letter and they entrusted him with this task. His willingness to go demonstrates his great courage because not only was the journey difficult and fraught with peril, but as he arrived there, his association with the Apostle Paul could have meant a number of things for him. Had the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, standing with the Roman government changed, and all of a sudden they decide, you know what, Paul, we're going to put you to death. We're tired of what you're doing. We're tired of the ministry that you're performing. We're going to put you to death. Anyone associated with the Apostle Paul could have also faced that same sentencing. But here Epaphroditus arrives in, in Rome, and he begins to work alongside of the Apostle Paul. And look at what Paul says. He calls him three things there in verse 25. He says, my brother and my fellow worker and soldier, fellow soldier in Christ. It's really interesting here. Because you would think that one who had really not been there all that long would not have been able to make such an impact. But as Paul looked at Epaphroditus, he saw these three things in him. He saw him as a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. That word brother means that he is a brother in Christ. Epaphroditus' life was one that testified to the fact that he had truly repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. He was truly a Christian. So Paul was encouraged by that fact, but he was also encouraged by the fact that he was a fellow worker. He was willing to get his hands dirty for the cause of the gospel. He was willing to do the work that was necessary. So Paul was encouraged by the fact that he was willing to, to be obedient to the call to share the gospel and to do everything that was necessary. But Paul also said that he was a fellow soldier. Because brothers and sisters, the life of a Christian is a life of warfare. Oftentimes we don't think about that, right? When we think about Christianity, we think about what is oftentimes talked about, that Christianity is a religion of of peace. And we are in the sense that we have the, the love and the mercy of grace that we proclaim, and we're not going out as, they, as the Catholic Church did in the Crusades and, 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 and converting people by the point of the sword and the spear. And we're not going out and fighting physical battles. But we understand that the Christian life is one of warfare against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's one that we must be prepared for. It's the reason why the Scripture tells us to put on the full armor of God, that we are prepared for the battle. But that battle is not just all the time in the spiritual realm. Oftentimes that battle sometimes is in the physical realm because we will face persecution and we will face difficulty and we will face trial and tribulation. But Paul says that Epaphroditus was not just a brother and a fellow worker, but a brave soldier in the army of the Lord. He was laboring alongside Paul through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he said he did all that to minister to his needs. But not only was he committed to that, but he was committed to labor through his own sickness. We don't know when Epaphroditus fell sick, but Paul tells us that he was sick unto the point of death. Some commentators think that perhaps it happened on his way there. The journey was so arduous and difficult that he fell sick on the journey and just continued laboring on until he got to Rome and arrived in Rome sick. Others believe that it was because of his service to Christ. He was working so hard and so in so many different places and arenas that somehow he fell sick along the way. We don't know. All we know is that his sickness was great and that Paul was worried. And Paul said, he said, he, he almost died. His sickness was so great that he almost died. And what's interesting about Epaphroditus in this moment is that he wasn't concerned about his own health. He wasn't concerned about his own weaknesses. He was concerned, himself concerned with the church at Philippi. Look at verse 26. This tells us so much about this man's heart. He says, he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Somehow the message of Epaphroditus' sickness had made it back to the church at Philippi. And they were concerned now not only for the Apostle Paul, but for their beloved brother who they had sent to Paul because now he was sick and sick almost to the point of death. And Epaphroditus, as he looked at this, you think about it, having been on his deathbed and now recovered, he says, my concern is not about myself. He says, I'm worried because they're worried about me. 
Proverbs tells us anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Epaphroditus' desire was to get news back to the church at Philippi, that he was okay, that they didn't have to worry about him or be anxious about him, but that God had delivered him. Now, again, we don't know what his sickness was, but we know that he was so sick that he almost died. And so then the question arises, right? Because Epaphroditus is working alongside of the Apostle Paul. Why didn't Paul just heal the man? Right? We know the Apostle Paul has done that before. Why didn't the Apostle Paul just heal him? You notice there's not very many faith healers that preach on this passage. Not very many faith healers that preach on the passage where Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for your stomach because obviously he was having some health issues. Why didn't Paul just heal Timothy? Well, it's very clear that even in the apostolic times when the gift of healing was still a needed thing and an evident thing in the church, that these men did not just walk around willy-nilly healing whoever they wanted at any moment. It was by the guidance and direction of God. They weren't holding crusades and bringing people out of wheelchairs up on the stage and knocking them back over and proclaiming to heal them. They were genuinely healing people, but only under the auspices and the guidance of God. And for some reason in this moment, God did not tell Paul to heal Epaphroditus miraculously, but God healed him himself. God brought him healing and he spared him. God allowed this sickness for a number of reasons. One, I think, to, to testify of his goodness and grace, but I think also to show us an example of one who, even in the midst of sickness, was still so committed to the cause of the gospel. And God healed him for his own sake, but God also healed him for Paul's sake. Because he says, God had mercy on me and healed him, that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. If Epaphroditus had died, Paul would have been, he says, grieved upon grief. He would have been grieving for Epaphroditus, but he also would have been grieving for the church at Philippi and the loss of their brother in Christ. But Paul says, God had mercy. God healed him. And he says, therefore, I will send him all the more eagerly so that you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. It was not Epaphroditus' idea to return. He wanted to stay and to continue to labor alongside of Paul. And what Paul is doing in this moment, interestingly enough, is he's laying down a precedent because he knew what would happen when Epaphroditus arrived back in Philippi. There might have been some who questioned his intentions. Well, why did you come back so soon? We sent you there for a purpose. Why are you already back? Did you just give up? We understand that you were sick, but, but now you're better. Why didn't you continue laboring with Paul? And so Paul wants them to understand. He says, I'm the one who's sending him back to you so that you can rejoice at God's goodness in his life, that you can see that God has healed him. You can see him with your own eyes and that you can have great joy. And he says that I may be less concerned about you. Paul wanted to be filled with comfort and knowing that they would be comforted as well. I think it's interesting as you look through the entirety of this passage, and this is not what we're particularly looking at this morning, but you see it over and over again, of this joint thing amongst the church, that he shares his joy with them and they share their joy with him. He brings them comfort and he experiences comfort the same way. And this is what it's like in the body of Christ. As we walk through things together, we share those things. We share joy together. We share comfort together. We share excitement and happiness together. And brothers and sisters, we share mourning and grief together. And that's what we're to do to encourage one another in this journey. But the most incredible thing about Epaphroditus and the example that Paul lays out here was that he had a commitment unto death. Look at verse 29. He says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. He says to receive him in the Lord. He says, when you see Epaphroditus arrive back, he says, don't, don't question his motives. Don't question his intention. In fact, receive him with joy and receive him with great honor. He says, because he has labored and served faithfully for the gospel alongside of me. He says, receive him with joy. He says, be encouraged at the work that he accomplished here. He says, and to hold him with high regard or with honor. Paul talked over and over again 
about those who labored on the behalf of the gospel and how they should be received with honor and recognized for, for their, in, for their, um, for their work and for their perseverance in the faith. Now, again, we don't know what his sickness was. We don't know what he endured. But notice what Paul says in verse 30, because he says it again, but he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. That word risk means to gamble. And it was a word that was used uh, in, in gambling, even in that time of the Bible, where you would take all of your money and you would put it on the table for one roll of the dice. You would risk everything for one roll of the dice. And he says Epaphroditus should be recognized and celebrated and received with great joy because he was willing to gamble his own life for the service of Christ. Commentators point to the fact that what Paul is referring to here is that even in the midst of his sickness, he didn't stop. He was sick, sick almost to death, but he kept working. He kept laboring. He kept being faithful. He kept doing everything that he could with whatever strength that he had. And he says, I don't even care if I give up my own life. I'm going to continue to do what God has called me to do in this moment. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we must be in a place where we realize that our life is not our own. And we are not called here to build a life to satisfy ourselves. We're not called here to build a life to satisfy our own longings and our own desires, but we are called here to live a life that glorifies and honors God. We are called here to spend our life for the gospel. Paul said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Revelation chapter 12, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. They were willing to lay it all on the line for the gospel. William Barclay in his commentary mentions that soon after the New Testament church, there were a group of men called the Parabolani. And that word actually means the gamblers, but these were a group of men who were inspired by Epaphroditus, who went and ministered in the places where no one else would go. They went into the prisons and they went into those who were sick with, uh, with various communicable diseases. And they went there because they knew those people needed the gospel. And they were willing to say, we're going to even risk our very lives in order that these people might know the truth of the gospel. When the city of Carthage suffered a plague in AD 252, the pagans were so afraid they wouldn't even bury the bodies. So there were thousands of corpses that were piling up all over the city. And Cyprian, the bishop, led the Christians there to the dangerous task of burying thousands of corpses. They were willing to put even their own lives on the line. I remember hearing one preacher say, when speaking of the Christian life, he said, I would rather wear out than rust out. And I always think of George Whitfield, George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists that's ever lived in both England and here in the United States. One of the great leaders of the first great awakening. If you ever study the history of his life, the man preached in the open air to countless numbers, thousands, tens of thousands of people, something that was astonishing for the time. And on the night that he died, he had been preaching and he was exhausted. The man had preached himself to death, literally. And he was on his way home to rest for the night because he needed some rest. And on his way there, the people crowded outside the house he was staying in. And they pleaded with him, Mr. Whitfield, we must hear you preach just one more time. We must hear you preach just one more time. And so he stood on the steps of this house and he preached his heart out. And he went upstairs and he laid down and he died. He gambled his life for the sake of the gospel. He risked it all for the sake of Christ. It's interesting, the last part of that verse, Paul says that he completed what was deficient in your service to me. 
And we could read that and say, well, Paul, it said they've, they've sent Epaphroditus to you. They've tried to encourage you. They've sent you money. What, what, what were they deficient in? This was not a criticism that Paul was leveling against them. And basically what he was saying, he says, you've done everything you could. And I know that you would desire to do more. So take trust in this fact that because of Epaphroditus' service to me, he says, you've done all you needed to do. You've accomplished what you desired to do. But brothers and sisters, are we willing to risk it all for Christ? As Americans, we grow up with the mindset of long life. In the world we live today, there's so many things, right? You turn on the TV, there's all these products to help make you look younger, right? We dye and color our hair. We wear younger looking clothes. We do all of these things to try to make ourselves look younger. There's this desire and appeal of, of you know, will there ever be immortality, right? Will, will scientists ever figure out a way to reverse the aging process? Why? Because we want to we wanna live long lives. And we should desire to live as long as God desires for us to live. Shouldn't desire for our life to be cut short at any moment. But do we desire, do we have the passion in our heart to say, God, whatever you call us to do, we're willing to lay it all on the line for you. We're willing to put all the money on the table and to roll with one roll of the dice to say, Lord, whatever you call me to do, I'll do it. I really do believe that what we're reading about here with the Apostle Paul will become much more of a reality for us in the days and years ahead. You've heard me say before that you know, we, we live in a completely different culture in our country than we did even 20 years ago. Some of you in this room grew up in an America that was much more of a Christian nation, where Christianity was, was celebrated as a thing. We were proud to be a nation that had churches and, and loved the gospel and loved the Lord. And then some of you in the room have grown up, myself, in, in much more of a culture that tolerated Christianity right? We, we, we know Christianity is here, and they can stay over there, and we'll stay over here, and we'll just keep our separate ways. But we are very quickly moving into a time where Christianity is not celebrated, it's not tolerated, but that it is totally hated. Just this past week, there was a, a news report on the rise of so-called Christian nationalism. Now, people define that in many different ways, and I would encourage you to, to, to watch the, the news report. But what I found interesting was, was regardless of, of what you think of, of the idea of Christian nationalism, was the, the hatred of these people who were doing this, of this news broadcast on the very truths of core doctrines of Christian Scripture. It wasn't about we see these people, we disagree with them. It was very much this idea of how can these people believe these things? You know, what a danger this is to our nation that Christians would want to see Christianity flourish. And brothers and sisters, we have to understand that God is going to call us and has called us to stand for the truth of His Word. And we've got to be willing to do so no matter the cost. Paul was willing to suffer in prison for the sake of the gospel. Timothy was willing to do whatever was necessary to be obedient to God. Epaphroditus was willing to lay down his own life to be obedient to what God had called him to do. The Christian life is one of example. And here we have three men who God is calling us this morning. May we follow the example that they've given us in obedience to him. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you do give us examples to follow after. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, Lord, three men who boldly lived their lives in service to you. And Father, we acknowledge our weakness we acknowledge our failures, Lord, that we don't always do what we want to do. Lord, we know that we have failed in many times in not being as bold or not having our priorities in line. Lord, of shying away when we should have been more resolved. But we're thankful that there is forgiveness available in Christ. We're thankful that your word tells us that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, we pray for that today. Lord, help us to be, as Paul told us last week, to be lights shining in a darkened world. Lord, to be beacons of hope to this world. 
Lord, help us to be firm and resolved in our stand. Lord, not worrying about what the world says, but only, Father, worrying about what you say. Lord, help us to stand strong for the gospel in a world that so desperately needs it, but so viciously hates it. Lord, help us to see your gospel go forth in Waynesville and in Haywood County and to the furthest parts of the globe through the ministry of this church and through the obedience of your people here. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.